immediately after, well, not immediately, sometime after our study tonight, we are going to, uh, for those of you who are able to help, we're going to transform the uh, room into the ladies' dinner uh, for Friday night. So we'll, Ken will be in charge of that. We'll stack up the chairs, bring the tables out, and uh, take your, so if those of you guys who can help us with that a little while after the service, that'll be great. Uh, the dinner is full, but uh, if you've signed up for the dinner and you're not planning on attending or you can't attend, let us know because there is a short waiting list and we'd like to uh, let those ladies... Pardon me? You have a spare ticket. I, I shouldn't have announced that. <laughs> thought you said we were serving spare ribs and I was going to come. <laughs> so, well, see Irma after. Anyway, so uh, that's that. And... Uh, Tomorrow afternoon at uh, 3 p.m. is our weekly bulletin folding party, and, and that's, that's turned into one of the big events here at our church. Uh, you laugh, you think I... But uh, there's a lot of people coming. We have a great time, and uh, we fire up all the beverages in the cafe. We try experimental beverages. We've introduced our iced latte there and uh, so different things like that. So if you're available or you can sneak away from work... Uh, well, you know, morally, if you can do that morally, uh, we're there on Thursdays at three o'clock. How many of you were at the musical on Sunday afternoon? Raise your hand. Was that phenomenal or what? That was great. Uh, that was really a great, great musical uh, that the kids put on and, and we appreciate that. So lots of good things happening. Uh, as we, uh, and look at uh, the decorating turned out great in here, didn't it? Isn't it wonderful? Yeah. Yeah. Of course, you know, if anybody's against the Christmas tree, then so am I. But in the meantime, I, I love it, you know, so no, it's, it's great. I, I love this room. This is a great room. You know, they don't build rooms like this anymore with the big open beams and, you know, we've added the cornices. I mean, it's just phenomenal, you know, so. We should just be thankful. I was just sitting here as we were worshiping, just very thankful for what the Lord has given us and uh, blessed us with. So, And he's given us his word, and we like to study it. And we're in Ruth chapter 1 tonight as we continue going through the Old Testament. Everybody's making fun of me because I don't really take these, you know, I can't take these big portions of Scripture and... You know, they, you know, why can't we do the whole book of Ruth? And, and I could do the whole book of Ruth, but we'd be here for an hour. And, and nobody wants to be here for an hour, so quit making fun of me. <laughs> Chuck Smith used to teach, I mean, he'd take five, ten chapters, but you were there for 90 minutes. It seemed like ten, though, you know, and so I understand I'm not Chuck. So, I mean, I could listen to Chuck all night. I don't know how he did it because he talks so slow too. So, well, you know, I love Chuck. I mean, he's he's a slow talker. You've heard of low talkers. He's a slow talker. You know. The Bible. I mean, because you know he's talking to God right then. You know, it's like he's put you on hold while the Lord shares insights with him and stuff, and he's like transported into the throne, and then. It's fantastic stuff, I'll tell you. Ruth chapter 1, bread and brides. God is romantic. It's more precise, perhaps theologically, to say that love is an attribute of God and that God's love is sometimes expressed in the form of romance. 
while it would be more precise, it's less passionate. Most books on theology, while precise, are not passionate. They mention love as an attribute of God, but entirely fail to discuss the romantic aspect of his love. Yet God himself goes to great lengths to portray the romantic aspect of his nature and of his love in the Bible. The Bible is full with metaphors and manuscripts that reveal God's love as a romantic love. As for metaphors, God often speaks of his love for you in terms of a husband's love for his wife. In the Old Testament, God the Father speaks of the nation of Israel as his wife and of himself as her loving and faithful husband. In the New Testament, the church is called the bride of God the Son, Jesus Christ. Then there are romantic manuscripts, two whole books of the inspired word of God, the Song of Solomon and the book of Ruth. The Song of Solomon could be called the romance of relationship. It is primarily a book celebrating romantic love in the relationship between a husband and a wife. It also speaks metaphorically of the love of God for his beloved, of his love for you. But it is done to the extent that it's a, it's a metaphor, it's done in a romantic context. And, and it's always... The Song of Solomon is always, uh, it's always fun to listen to people teach the Song of Solomon because they don't want to talk about what it's really about. It's about a man and a woman falling in love and, and doing the things that men and women do when they fall in love and get married. Uh, and, and yes, there's, there are metaphorical aspects to it, but it's a book about love, romantic love, physical love. And God included it in the scripture. The Jews understood what it was about. Every time we misunderstand something, you can go thank the Jews because they understood it. They wouldn't let children under the age of 13 read the Song of Solomon because they considered it a little bit too racy. It was the first really like PG-13 <laughs> rating system. You know, you th we think we're so advanced technically here with our rating system that is bogus anyway, by the way. How do they come up with that stuff? R-rated movies used to be X-rated movies. PG, I don't know what PG-13 is anymore. But uh, at any rate, this was the first, this was a PG-13 book. Uh, and and uh, it's about love and romance especially. And then the book of Ruth. It's been called the Romance of Redemption. The book presents an important teaching in the biblical doctrine of redemption. When an Israelite was in financial distress, he could sell his land or even himself. A redeemer bought back property and people who were sold under distress. Redemption was possible only through the work of a near kinsman, a relative, who exercised his responsibility to redeem his brother's property. In this book, the human race is seen by God as sold to slavery and sin, needing to be redeemed. And therefore, it was necessary for God to come as a man in order to redeem the human race as our near kinsman. God tells you, though, this crucial doctrinal truth in the context of a romantic love story. The book of Ruth tells the story of a couple who love each other, but their love is a mirror in which we can see the divine love of Jesus for you and I. Boaz, redeeming Ruth, is a type of Jesus redeeming the human race, and Ruth is a type of the redeemed believer whom he passionately loves. Your redemption is not a cold, formal, matter-of-fact business transaction, it's a passionate act of everlasting love for you by Jesus Christ, your kinsman redeemer. And so there are those dual aspects of it. And, and, you know, we don't need to be accused of going to one extreme or the other. 
Certainly there is a legal aspect, there is a judicial aspect, an, an intellectual academic aspect to understanding redemption and, and the, the transaction that takes place. Uh, but there's not a really enough talk about the romance of it. And, and so God says, hey, here's, here's how I intend you to understand the redemption of the human race. Yes, it, it, you know, I needed to satisfy uh, my wrath and my justice and all of those things, but it's because I loved you and wanted to draw you to me with cords of love. And, and we, we maybe can't overemphasize that. In the book of Ruth, a citizen from Bethlehem named Elimelech, his wife Naomi and their two sons moved to Moab during a famine. The boys marry Moabite girls, but soon both father and sons die, leaving three widows. Naomi returns to Bethlehem, accompanied by one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth. Naomi has lost everything and is destitute. She sends Ruth out to glean behind the reapers during the barley harvest. In the providence of God, Ruth gleans barley in a field owned by Boaz, who is a near kinsman to Elimelech. At their first meeting, Boaz falls in love with Ruth. Upon learning of this, Naomi begins planning for the wedding. She sends Ruth to Boaz to request of him to fulfill his responsibility as a kinsman redeemer. Boaz is thrilled with Ruth's request, but tells her that there is a kinsman redeemer closer than him. Boaz arranges a meeting with this closer kinsman. Upon hearing the facts, this man steps aside and allows Boaz to fulfill the kinsman redeemer responsibilities, which include marriage to Ruth. Ruth eventually conceives a baby boy. His name is Obed. He becomes the grandfather of King David. And so it's a beautiful love story, and uh, that's the overview. Our love story opens against a very, very dark background. Elimelech and his family turn from following God, and they go to live among the idolatrous Moabites. By chapter's end, Naomi has returned to God from the idolaters, and Ruth has turned to God from idolatry. While Ruth's love for Naomi should not be minimized, it is God's love for both of them that is most precious. His love acts behind the scenes of their life to pressure them to return and to prosper their return. And so let's pick up the story in chapter 1, verse 1, where there was a famine in Israel. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, the Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Now, this famine was a moment of real decision for Elimelech as the leader of this family. The Moabites were pagan idolaters, enemies of the Israelites. Nevertheless, they had bread to eat in Moab. It's interesting, Bethlehem means house of bread and Judah means praise. Rather than stay in the house of bread and praise the Lord, even though there was a famine, Elimelech decided to take his family to Moab. His decision, you're going to see, leads to a decade of disobedience with dire consequences. Uh, it's just, you just... You'd have to figure out your own analogy here, but if you're an Israelite, you don't move to Moab. You just don't go there. It's not a place that's, that, that you're welcome. It's not a place where God can minister to you. It's not a place where God is leading you. 
And so uh, I guess the, the overriding lesson would be we, we need the leading of the Lord. I mean, we do, we, there are these things that we maybe desire or even think that we need. But we need to be careful if they're outside the, the will of God for us. And so in verse 3, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, he died. And she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the women, or excuse me, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Moab was no place for them. The Moabites were the descendants of the son born to Lot and his daughter from their incest after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Later, the Moabites hindered the exodus of the Jews from Egypt. 24,000 Israelites died from a plague when the Jewish men consorted with Moabite women and were led into idolatry. During the time of the judges, immediately preceding the events of Ruth, Moab had enslaved the people of Israel. Having turned from God to idols by settling in Moab, God turned up the pressure. Tragedy struck the family as the father died. It was a severe mercy, an act of love, as God was calling His people to return. There are severe mercies in the economy of God. Uh, in the sense that, yes, they're severe, uh, a life was taken, a, a father, a husband gone, but a mercy nevertheless because it's a wake-up call, it's an opportunity for them to, to take stock and take inventory of where they're at. Hey, we shouldn't be here. Nothing's really going right for us here and, and now tragedy has struck. Let's go back and be among our own people. But instead their disobedience increased. The sons took Moabite wives contrary to God's law. As their disobedience increased, so did the pressure of God's love for them to return. Malon and Chilion also died, now leaving behind three widows. Hey, God is serious about them not being down there. He's going to kill them if they, they want to hang out down there. And, and, and I, I say that uh, with respect. I mean, God can kill people. It, it, you know, Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. Man, am I glad that God doesn't do that today. They're uh, watching Barnabas. He sells some property, donates the proceeds to the church. He probably you know, gets some notoriety. I'm sure he didn't want any. He's just an encourager. Might have been the first plaque. I don't know. You know but, but, uh, and uh, so Ananias and Fire get this idea that they're going to sell a piece of property and keep part of the money, but tell everybody that they gave it all to the Lord. And one after the other, they dropped dead. As Peter asked them, hey, did you sell your property and give the money to the Lord? Yeah. Bam. You know, why did you lie to God? Uh, and so God is, it's serious doing business with God. And, and, and I mean, I guess if you're in a little while, you know, Naomi's going to have a problem saying, you know, blame some stuff on God. But man, if you're down in Moab, this is the kind of stuff that's going to happen to you. And God says, I'm going, to, I'm going to be merciful, but it's going to be severe because your disobedience is so severe. And so now they're down there, three widows. Uh, bad enough to be a widow in Israel. How, how, to be an Israelite widow in Moab, I mean, you're in real deep trouble. And so Elimelech sought bread for his family. Naomi sought brides for her sons. Because, really, of bread and brides, they turned from God to idols. Not wrong for a father to seek bread for his family, in, in the general sense, that we provide for our families and that kind of thing. But, 
Bread can become an idol if it's preferred over God. In this sense, bread would represent anything that pertains to sustaining your physical life that you are, would go after instead of God. Jesus, of course, encouraged us to what? Seek first the kingdom of God and then trust that our necessary food and appropriate clothing and adequate shelter would be provided by our Heavenly Father. When we reverse the order, God takes second place and whatever it is you are seeking then becomes an idol. And so it's, it's very simple, really. They're in Israel, there's a famine in the land, and they say, we're going to prefer bread to obedience. We know there's bread in Moab, we're going to go down there. And we're going to, we're going to, and they had precedence even in the Bible. I mean, Abraham had a similar situation early in his career as a man of faith. There was a famine, you know, where God sent him and he heard that there was bread down in Egypt. And he so went down to Egypt and, and was about 13 years wandering around, not really hearing from the Lord, creating problems for himself and his family, picking up a slave girl down there that would create immense problems from that point forward that are still being fought in the world today. And so on every possible level, they should not have been in Moab. You just ride out the famine rather than go into the world. Uh, And so bread can become an idol. Don't let some slice of bread become an idol, something that you're pursuing. It's not wrong for a mother to seek brides for her sons. But brides can become an idol if preferred over God. Brides here would represent circumstances you believe are necessary to satisfy you physically or emotionally. I'm just throw out some things. Education, marriage, career, position. We look to certain circumstances to bring us contentment. Some of us, probably, if we're honest, have been dominated in our lives for a period of time by some pursuit, something that we wanted, something that seemed, you know, elusive, that that God wasn't allowing us to have, and we just wouldn't take no for an answer. It it, it consumed us, trying to figure out how we could circumvent the the providence of God. And... uh, A lot of us have made mistakes because we've settled for something that wasn't really what God had for us, but we felt like we had this need in our life. We have to satisfy this need, this urge, this deserving that we have to to have whatever it was. And we're we're not a very patient people when it comes to that. We look to those things to bring us contentment. The Apostle Paul told you, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances When you look to circumstances to bring you contentment rather than looking for God in your circumstances and your circumstances become an idol uh, and uh, it's it's going to get you in trouble. I've learned in every circumstance to be content, Paul said, whether I'm abounding or whether I'm abased. And, And that's really one of the keys to the Christian life is to learn contentment. I'm content with God whether I have little or whether I have a lot. And both of those extremes and everywhere in between are difficult for us. Because one of the reasons they are, not the only reason, but one of the reasons we're always comparing ourselves to other people. Other people, not the people that are less well-off than we are, that they don't really count for some reason. I don't know why. They must be doing something wrong. But there's always peers 
that are doing better than us. They have more than us. They're getting ahead farther than us or, or whatever it is. And, and we just need to quit doing that. I know it's, a, it's easy to say, hard to do, but God has a unique plan for my life. And he's working out that plan with all the unique things that he brings into my life that are unlike the things that he's doing in your life and vice versa. And if the goal is to conform me to the image of Jesus Christ, that, that I would become more like Jesus Christ, my heart is different than your heart, my, my experiences are different than yours, and vice versa, and God says this is a way that I can, I can root out that bitterness, that I can destroy that attitude, that I can make you more patient, that I can do whatever it is that I need to do in your life, these are the circumstances. There are some similarities because we're all in the same world and the same things are happening, but, but these are the unique set of circumstances that are going to do it for you. And so quit looking at the other person. They're not in your shoes. They're not on your path. I'm not walking with them in that same way. But we, we continue to compare ourselves to others and uh, we, we sometimes gloat that we're better than others. Sometimes we're sad that we're not as well off as others. And, and it's, it's very sad. We just need to be content in our relationship with God. It doesn't matter how much you have, how little you have. Uh, it, you really, your circumstances shouldn't matter at all. Is, is God in your circumstances? And so don't let some bride become your idol, whatever that might mean to you. And so God loves you too much not to intervene when you turn from Him to these idols. And so although His actions can seem severe... He is always acting from love. Uh, love is a severe thing. I mean, when you love somebody, you're jealous over them. Not a, and, and God is jealous in a godly way, obviously, in a good way. We, we have a hard time with jealousy. It reveals itself in some ugliness. But there is a positive jealousy. There's a good, I'm glad that God is jealous over me. I'm glad that when I start to wander away, God doesn't say, well, okay, then go with the devil. You love him? Go ahead. After all, if you love something, let it go. And if it comes back. I mean, I'm glad God's not like that. I mean, God will let you go so far. And he says, man, that's it. I'm, I'm bringing some severe mercy in your life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break your leg. I'm going I'm to kill something you love. I'm going to kill you if I have to. Because where you're headed is just, it's not where you want to be. And so, you know, it's... You know, God's probably the first one who said it's my way or the highway, you know, or something. But, I mean, let's go. And it's severe. And, and, and I'm thankful for that because otherwise I'd be dead uh, and in hell rather than, you know, maybe God's going to kill me and bring me to heaven, which would be fine, you know. So the Bible says we shouldn't inquire whether someone has sinned a sin unto death. Uh, but I think people still do. They sin and God takes them home early. Paul the Apostle, he said that, some of them because they were getting drunk at the communion table and otherwise just goofing off. He said, some of you are sick and some of you are dying. In other words, God has taken some of you home early because this is a serious thing. And so God's serious. There are severe mercies. Both Naomi and Ruth turn to God from idols. Naomi and Ruth return in poverty. But God's love is acting behind the scenes to prosper them. By the end of the story, the women of Bethlehem can say of Naomi, your daughter who loves you is better to you than seven sons. That's a fantastic thing when you consider their culture and the desire to have sons and, and the, the place of women. 
to think that a foreign daughter-in-law is better to you than seven Jewish sons. I mean, that's tremendous. And by the end of the story, Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David and is in the line of the Jewish Messiah. And so this is a beautiful story. Verse 6, when she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. From God's point of view, the moment Naomi returned to God in her heart, the abundance of his blessings were once again showered out upon her. From her point of view, however, there was a difficult road to travel. Someone once said, who can mind the journey when the road leads home? Good sentiment, but the truth is we do mind the journey. We, we don't like the road that we have to travel. Be reminded that God is always working behind the scenes of your journey to prosper you. One of the things you love about reading the Bible is you wish you could jump in and tell these people, hey, it's going to be all right. I've read the end of the story. You're going to go back and Ruth and Boaz and it's all going to be this really cool thing. But, you know, they, and, and so we sit there and think, oh, just be patient. And this is tremendous. Joseph is the greatest example of this. I mean, who would want to be Joseph? Sold into, his brothers tried to kill him. And then they decide to sell him into slavery instead. And he ends up in prison, falsely accused, seemingly forgotten. All through this time, finally God elevates him to be second in command to Pharaoh. His brothers come and he sees what it's all about. And he says, man, you guys meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And we think, oh, Joseph, that's so great. Well, that's, that's your life right now. There's, you're in some pit or prison, perhaps. You're, on some, you're somewhere on that road, that journey, and you think, man, I don't like this. Joseph at one point said, hey, remember me when you're reinstated with Pharaoh. I interpreted your dream. It was a cool interpretation, you remember, you know? You lived, the other guy died, hey, you know, remember me. And they didn't for a long time. And so we don't like the journey because we don't see the end. We see the end in the Bible and we need to realize that's, that's the story that's being played out in my life. It's not on the pages of Scripture. It's written down somewhere in, in heaven where God's keeping track of these things. It's going to end that same way in glory with joy. And, and I, I'm going to be able to look back and, and I don't think it's going to be as magnificent as the story of Joseph or Ruth or any of these people. But from God's point of view, it is. I'm going to be able to look back with the Lord and He's going to say, hey, you know, and here you made this decision and you went to Hanford and, and then over here this happened and... Remember here you were really discouraged and I had to do this severe mercy and you know I really nailed you there. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that. And then this happened and then this person did that, you know. And, and, and then you're going to look back and say, oh yeah, they meant it for evil, Lord, but you meant it for good. And it all worked out too. Because the Bible says what? Everything works together for good for those that love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. And so, verse 8, Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. And they said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? I'm going to have, am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you 
because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. There, there was really no hope that Orpah and Ruth would find husbands in Judah. The Jews were commanded by Moses in Deuteronomy not to intermarry with Gentiles. Uh, Moabites were excluded from Israel, and so they had no future in Israel. And so even if you, know, you could proselyte and become an Israelite, but not if you were a Moabite. I mean, they were just excluded. And so verse 14, and at this they wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law has going, is going back to her people and her gods go back with her. Naomi had decided to return to God from her idolatry. Orpah and Ruth must decide if they would turn to God from idols. The mention of the gods of Moab indicates that this was a spiritual crisis. Moab meant idolatry. Israel meant worship of the true God. And so this is a moment of faith. And so here are two pagan women idolaters from wicked Moab who have been enlightened by the knowledge of the true God to a certain degree. The text makes no distinction between them except their personal decision. Both stood on the threshold of eternal life. Orpah failed to turn to God. Faced with the decision, she counted the cost and preferred some slice of bread and the prospect of being a bride in Moab. That's essentially what she was going after. Naomi, just on a purely physical, natural level, said, if you come back with me to Israel, uh, you're never going to get married. Nothing's going to, you know, the things that you desire in this world are never going to happen for you. And Orpah weighed that out and she thought, okay, I'd like to be somebody's bride again and establish a life for myself and those kinds of things. And so she went for it. She loved this present world more than she loved God. And essentially her idolatry kept her out of the kingdom of God. But Ruth replied in verse 16, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Ruth is starting to get an idea that God is severe in His mercies. And she's thought, you know... I, I want to know this God. It's just a phenomenal thing to me that, that God would deal this way with them. First Elimelech, then Malon and Chilion, and now they're destitute and all this. And Ruth would watch all of that happen. I mean, think of it from one point of view. You say you're Israelites. You left there because there was a famine. God's not taking care of His people. And you come down here, you marry uh, Moabites, and your husbands die. Hey, I want some of that. But she did, because she understood the nature of God. She understood some, in some dimension, in some capacity, that God was dealing with them out of love, that He was jealous over them, that He didn't want them to get away from Him, and He was reaching out to them. And she said, look, I don't want the bread of Moab anymore. I don't want to be the bride of a Moabite. I'd rather be single in the land of the Israelites. I'd rather be an outcast spinster uh, I don't know. That's not right, is it? What's a spinster? Is it? Is this, can you have been married and still be a spinster? No, I didn't think so. So this is why I need to go to graduate school to get caught up on this kind of stuff. But anyway, so she's this outcast person. She says, I would rather be that person than do what my sister-in-law is going to do. I, I don't want what Moab has to offer anymore. I would rather follow this severe what up to this point seems to be a severe God, but severe in the sense that He loves 
you and he loves me and he, he someone who loves that much there there has to be something more to that love that I can learn and it, it's really tremendous it's, it's it's phenomenal Ruth chose the God of Israel and took her place of trust under his wings Orpah went back towards darkness superstition Ruth went onward into the light of glory and so when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? A decade of disobedience had taken its toll on Naomi. Hard living down in Moab. This is, uh, you ever see people and you think, whoa, <laughs> hey, weren't you the most likely to succeed? What happened? All it was is you became the most obvious to recede or something. I don't know. But anyway, she left with a husband and sons. She returned a childless widow with only a Gentile girl to show for ten years in Moab. She was a living parable of the cost of disobedience. Verse 20, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. It would be Mary in our language. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Obviously, Naomi hasn't fully accepted her situation. She's uh, in some kind of a... She doesn't really like God right now. But... Even with that, she is willing to return to God and walk in obedience, even in affliction and suffering. And so we give her credit for that. You know, sometimes Christians, you know, we're not always, uh, we don't even always bring our A game, you know. They taught you in those sports terms. They really brought their A game. They gave it 60 minutes or whatever, you know, and stuff. I was watching, I caught some football the other night, John Madden, I don't know where that guy what he smokes in between halves or something, but he's talking about the, I think the uh, Seattle Seahawks and how for the last two seasons, they only played like 45 minutes of defense, even though the game is 60 minutes long. And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? You know, <laughs> I mean, are they just, yeah, now somebody get, hey, hey guys, let's play the last quarter. Let's really get in there now. I mean, I, you know, I don't, it's just crazy, these sports metaphors, you know. But uh, it's clear that Christians don't always bring their A game. And, and sometimes we're, we're too quick, I think, to jump down people's throats. I mean, there's, you know, people suffer. They suffer greatly. Uh, we, you know, we want to encourage them and we don't want them to say weird and stupid things. But, um, you know, Naomi, she at least is walking with God. She says, hey, I'm, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back. Mad at God. Don't like what he's allowed in my life, but I'm going to go back and, and at least start in obedience. And so it's a beginning. Verse 22, So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now it's interesting. Naomi left seeking bread during a famine. She returned to famine during a harvest of bread. Isn't that cool? Not for her, but it's cool for us. God had blessed Bethlehem with bread, but Naomi had no part in it. Ruth would be forced to glean barley behind the harvesters along with the others who were poor and destitute. Naomi returned to God from idolatry. 
She speaks to you of believers who return from their pursuit of bread and brides, realizing that God alone sustains and satisfies. Ruth turned to God from idols. She speaks to you of unbelievers who choose Jesus Christ and then find that Christ has chosen them in the greatest plan of eternity. This story becomes all the more precious when you see your own connection with Ruth. As we go on, we'll see this. Ruth was a Gentile girl cut off from Israel who was brought into a place of blessing as a bride. In the New Testament book of Ephesians, you see that this is precisely your condition as a Gentile. You are Gentiles cut off from Israel. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, at that time you were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Ruth as a Moabite represents you in, in your state as a Gentile. Yeah, I think we all have some, I shouldn't say all of us, a lot of people have a latent prejudice. And, and you know, we really you need to admit, I mean, Jesus was Jewish. Do you realize that? And, and God gave the Jews, not because they were great, I mean, it's it, because they were the least of people and He just decided He wanted to bless them to show His grace and mercy. It wasn't anything great about them, but nevertheless, they had the covenants, they had the law, they had the prophets, they brought the Messiah. And Paul the Apostle says, hey, you Gentiles, you were outsiders. You had nothing. You were lost. You didn't even have what the Jews had. You were like a Moabite girl, cut off from Israel. But you've been brought into a place of blessing as a bride. Verse 25 of Ephesians 5, or 32 says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And you know the metaphor of the, of the bride of Jesus Christ. Ruth is a picture of God's dealing with Gentiles during the time of Jewish apostasy between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. The family of Elimelech departing from the land of Israel. It's a picture of Israel being scattered throughout the world after having rejected Jesus in His first coming. Ruth was brought into blessing during their scattering. So it is that the church is brought into blessing during this interval prior to the second coming of the Lord. The position of the book of Ruth in the Old Testament itself is important. It's not accidental that the book of Ruth appears after Judges and before 1 Samuel. Judges tells of the failure of the Jews under the law. 1 Samuel tells the setting up of Israel's kingdom under King David. Between the failure of the Jews under the law and their great king, Jesus Christ, Ruth is blessed as the Gentile bride. Just so today, the church is blessed as the bride of Christ between the failure of Israel under the law and the return of Jesus as the king to establish his kingdom on the earth. Salvation goes forth to Ruth, a Gentile, during a time of failure in Israel. This is typical of the age of grace in which we live. Ruth was brought to Israel at the beginning of a barley harvest. This would be the time of first fruits, the celebration of the first of the harvest. First fruits speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the first fruits of many who would be saved during this age in which we live. Just as the Gentile Ruth was brought to the place of blessing at first fruits, so the church is brought to the place of blessing thanks to the resurrection of Jesus. Commentators say that the book of Ruth is read by the Jews at the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost was fulfilled in the New Testament when the church was born. And so thus even the Jews, without knowing it, celebrate the harvest of the Gentiles into the church when they read Ruth. 
during Pentecost, because that's essentially what Ruth is, the harvest of Gentiles into, the, into God's kingdom. And so there's so many marvelous uh, metaphors, analogies, and pictures here. But I want to end with what we started on. God is essentially romantic. And for all, I mean, there's parts of the Bible that are a science book. There's, there's parts that are history. There's parts that are geography. There's parts that are biology. There's much of it is theology. There's philosophy. There's biblical psychology. Uh, there's all kinds of things in the Bible in terms of a textbook. But it is also a romance novel in the truest sense of the word. And I think if there's any place that we fall short as believers, it's in understanding the love of God in a romantic sense. We understand it in a theological sense. We understand it in a judicial sense. We don't understand it in a romantic sense. And we need to do that more and more because God says, hey, I love you with an everlasting love. It's a passionate thing. It's a jealous thing. It's a severe thing. It's something that we all responded to when we became believers. And Jesus says, hey, the one thing I might have against you as a believer at some point in your life is what? That you have left your first love. Not that you don't understand theology. Not that you don't flow with the gifts of the Spirit. Not that you don't have great worship or teaching of the Word. It's that you might have left your first love. And so we're always needing to be calling ourselves back to a passionate love affair with the Lord. Father, we do thank you for these things. And I pray that those of us who are not very naturally romantic, Lord, would uh, begin to open ourselves up to the passion of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That we would see more and more these romantic manuscripts and especially metaphors throughout Scripture. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.